Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast for a special social distancing episode. I'm Kristen Roberts, the head of news for McClatchy, and I'm coming to you live from my house in Miami. And today I'm joined by Alex Rorty, political correspondent for McClatchy. Say hi. Kristen, it's wonderful to be here coming to you live from my bedroom in Washington, D.C. And also, welcome back to the show to Adam Wollner, who runs the politics desk in D.C. Hi. Hey, everyone. I'm also coming to you live from my apartment. Uh, I hope that there will be no repairs going on. This whole week, I've been working from home, and I've been greeted by loud drilling every morning, which has just been great while everyone's working from home. So my apologies in advance you know, to, to the listeners if that, if that pops up in the middle of this episode. <laughs> So we are recording this in two ways, right? We've got a little Google Hangout going, Mm -hmm. so there's a little Brady Bunch motif. We're all (laughs) staring at each other in little squares. Um, And we also are recording on these voice memos, and it's also being captured by our producer, Jeremy. So if the sound is a little weird, it's because we're not in the studio, and I hope you can forgive us. Today, we are going to just go ahead and do it. We are going to talk about politics. And I know everybody that I'm talking to is saying it's too soon. It's too soon. But frankly, I just I honestly need a break. I need a break (laughs) from talking about coronavirus statistics and testing and flattening that darn curve. So we're going to talk about politics. First, we're going to talk about when the heck is Bernie Sanders going to get out of this race? When is he going to get out of Joe Biden's way? We'll get there. I see Alex really wants to jump on that right now. He almost started talking. We'll get there in a second. And then we're going to actually talk about the political backbenchers who have emerged over the last few weeks as the local response and the state response and even the industry response has had to accelerate um, while the president's response was lackluster at best in the beginning. So we're going to talk about that. Are the two of you ready to go? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's start with Bernie Sanders. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. I'm surprised we're still saying the word Bernie (laughs) given the delegate count Mm -hmm. right now. Alex, let me throw it over to you. Uh, What is he doing and why is he doing it? Well, I I think we should first say, I mean, this we are getting the first serious indications just in the last few days since Tuesday's blowout defeats in Arizona, Florida, and Illinois that he might actually be leaving this race or at least is considering it. You know, before then, we were getting the the message from Bernie and the message from a lot of his supporters was, well, look, we know that the race is suddenly not going very well for us. We know that we're down. But folks, the revolution continues, right? And, and in particular, I think the message has been that Bernie's agenda is now perfectly matched to this unique political moment, you know, of pandemic politics where what the country needs, you know, in in responding to this virus and trying to protect both the individual health and the public health, how can you possibly do that in the words of a Bernie supporter or Bernie himself, if not everyone has health insurance, right? If we don't have paid sick leave in this country. And so he has tried, I think, almost to morph his, his campaign into a response to the virus, a political response to the virus. And I think he's tried to gain traction there. Because, you know, Adam, we were watching Tuesday night. He gave an address online, of course, while the results were coming in. He didn't even talk about what was happening in in Florida or Illinois or Arizona. FYI, usually not a good sign for how those results are going to go that night when the candidate doesn't even address the states that are talking about. But he was talking about 
the response to the coronavirus. And in fact, when Bernie Sanders was on the Hill yesterday, amid some of these reports starting to come out and word from his campaign that he was going to fly back to Vermont and assess his campaign and assess where it goes from here. He even got real testy with reporters on Capitol Hill who were asking him about it because he said, you know, in so many words that we're dealing with a global crisis right now. And that's where the focus needs to be. So I would say, you know, at this point, Adam, tell me if you think I'm, I'm right or wrong here. We haven't seen a lot of anger from Democrats just yet. It's on a low simmer over whether or not he should get out of this race. But if this drags out another couple of weeks, I, I think the, the heat might get turned up on that. Yeah, yeah, I've actually been a little surprised that there haven't been more forceful calls for Bernie Sanders to exit this race. On the one hand, you do have a lot of Democrats th- declaring that this primary is over, you know, th- kind of doing it from more of a, of a passive point of view. You know, we actually saw that already last Tuesday, the March 10th elections, um, as those results were coming in. You know, we saw major Democratic groups like Priorities USA, American Bridge say, this race is over. Joe Biden's the nominee. Let's get to the general. So that's kind of been the way they've been signaling to Bernie and his people like, hey, this thing's over. Time to get out. But, you know, mainstream Democrats realize that Bernie Sanders dropping out of this race is not the same as, you know, when Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar dropped out. Right. More or less for them, when the writing was on the wall, they got out of the way to let Democrats kind of get on with the process. But, you know, as you alluded to, Alex, you know, Sanders isn't just ending his campaign. I mean, he's really ending his progressive movement and needs to think about what the next steps for this are. I mean, he's he's 78 years old. He's probably not going to be running for president again after this. You know, this this is he's not ending his well, progressive. Sure. He's ending his his yes. leadership. Up. Yes, I should, yeah, ending was not the right word. It's the, the transitioning of his movement is what he needs to figure out. And that's, you know, that's going to take a, a little bit longer than just a couple of days after an election saying like, all right, I'm out. You know, let's all get behind Biden. Clearly, he has not really let up in a lot of his attacks of Joe Biden. I think a lot of Democrats were, you know, while they're not necessarily forcing him out of the race just yet, they weren't totally happy with how that debate went Sunday night when Bernie was really still hammering in on his record, particularly on Social Security. And, and as we wrote that night, I think that's something that could potentially resonate. In, in a general election for Joe Biden. It was, but it was a strange debate, Adam, right? I mean, yeah. it was a little bit, it wasn't what we were expecting because earlier in the week, Bernie had actually kind of telegraphed to Biden what he was going to talk about. He signaled, I thought in the press conference that he was going to ratchet down his tone. It was the one kind of odd note in all of this that Sunday they really seemed to really go head to head and Biden himself seemed to embrace that, which I thought was a little strange. Now, maybe mm-hmm. things are going to start to de-escalate now. It seems like they're for real this time de-escalating. I, my question is, are we sure Bernie's not going to run again? He's only he's only 82 in four years. Are we are we sure? I mean, if you're a 78 year old running, you're not. This is not a real conversation. right? (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is a little bit tug in cheek. But I really thought after, you know, he decided to run again after failing as a 74 year old. I was at least a little surprised that he was so gung ho to run as a 78 year old. I'm not sure why between 78 and 82 necessarily just for argument's sake, you just decide, oh, well, that, that it's, it's not going to happen now. Why those extra four years really make a difference? I actually think one of the most interesting things that we've seen, and this is bringing two themes together, right, the politics and the coronavirus response. One of the most interesting things that I see playing out is how the progressive movement's policy agenda is part of the conversation around stimulus, part of the conversation around what local governments are doing. I picked up on it first. It probably wasn't the first thing that, that happened, but I picked up on it first. 
as I was seeing local governments suspend evictions. No one can be evicted during this crisis. And the conversation then shifting to how did the Fed have so much ability to pump liquidity into the market? And you could see members of the progressive movement saying, well, hold on a second. Isn't that wonderful? But what about all these other priorities we have? Why isn't the Fed and their vast resources helping with these other priorities we have? And I'm starting to believe that Bernie's legacy you can almost see the beginning of the long tail of this, right? In the conversation around stimulus and the long-term implications of what the government is going to be doing over the course of the next couple of weeks to provide not just for the stability of the equity markets, but for the stability of small and local businesses, as well as individuals, no matter their means. No, I, I actually, I mean, I think the policy measures being discussed as part of this, both at a federal and a local level to the coronavirus, yes, the circumstances are unique when it's a, a global pandemic. But look, we had a global financial crisis 12 years ago, right? I mean, 11 years ago, it, it, we, we do have something to compare it to. And I actually, the thought I keep having over and over again is, I just feel like as a country, we've really moved to the left on on this. I mean, we really, and, yeah. and and to the point of the discussion with Bernie, I think Bernie is a huge part of that, obviously, and really mm-hmm. kind of the leading edge. And, you know, I, I joked in our last episode, you guys made fun of me that future Democratic candidates are going to name check Bernie Sanders as their inspiration, you know, in 30 or 40 or even even sooner than that. Yeah, I see, even, you know, probably the, even sooner than that. Yeah, <laughs> whenever, right. whenever, whenever AOC runs nominees. for president, that'll be the first example of that. I, yeah, I just think, you know, Bernie has, for a lot of politically engaged young people in the Democratic Party, I mean, he's completely radicalized them. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean that their politics are a lot different now than they were five years ago. I mean, five years ago, no one even talked about single-payer health care. And now you have, I mean, a, a big chunk of young Democrats who think it's morally reprehensible if you don't support it. You know, they won't hear of any discussion about not support. I, I can tell you, I mean, I, you know, Adam, you remember, it's not like single-payer was a subject that we discussed at all before Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. And now at this point, it is probably the pivotal issue within the Democratic Party that they're going to have to debate and and figure out where they stand on in in the coming years. But I will say the direction is clear. The direction is toward the Democratic Party embracing, if not a full-fledged single-payer system, then something closer and closer to that uh, with every successive election cycle. Okay, la, la, la. Can we be done talking about Bernie Sanders and his progressive agenda? Adam, did you have something else <laughs> oh. to say about this? No, I was just, I would just to, to put a cap on that. And I feel like that's why, you know, Bernie still feels like he has sort of a place in this campaign, even though it's more or less over, where, you know, the next couple of weeks, you know, as we wrote, you know, there's really going to be a pause on this campaign where there's not going to be elections. There's not going to be debates. There's not going to be public events. Everybody's talking about coronavirus. Nobody's really paying attention that much to what Biden or Sanders are doing. But Sanders still feels like, all right, this is where I can still push kind of this healthcare and economic message. And hopefully this is something that can linger and have an impact once we get past this whole coronavirus crisis. So once we, you know, maybe get a little bit closer into the general, then that's when you're going to start to see more Democrats start to push Sanders up. I think for now, they're fine letting him have his perch. He's, he's barely even talking about the election results right now. Let him talk about how to respond to coronavirus. There'll be a time to get to the general election <laughs> in, in a couple of weeks. It's actually totally relevant because The reason that the Democrats don't have to worry about Bernie getting out yesterday is because coronavirus has just put politics on pause. And, you know, we all have been talking for weeks about what's going to happen to Joe Biden the moment that he becomes the presumptive nominee. You know, Trump's team is going to unleash, but Trump's team hasn't unleashed. 
No. Trump's team is focused somewhere else. And it's giving Biden time, right? And so behind the scenes, you've got to expect that the Democratic kingmakers are trying to figure out how to nudge Bernie along the path toward his exit. But in reality, Joe Biden is getting a bit of a respite here, mm -hmm. right? Well, if, if, are we are we allowed to talk politics? Have we decided well, on the show we're just we're going to? I opened up. I opened yeah. up at the top saying the we're going to talk about that. I, I, and I, I couldn't agree more. This isn't a public health symposium. This is a politics podcast. So I agree. You know, I, I think that this. You know, it's not something that they're going to ever publicly admit to. At least certainly not now. But yeah, it is giving Joe Biden some cover. And we've talked about that. I don't know on this show, but I know that we've talked about this in our politics meetings, that this was supposed to be a big moment for Donald Trump. It was supposed to be a big moment for whoever the inevitable Democratic nominee was going to be, that they were going to have to contend with the, the full Trump war machine, which has been marshalling resources for years, doing the research, designing a battle plan to really define whoever the Democratic nominee was before that nominee was going to be able to return fire because they were transitioning from the primary to the general election. It's what Barack Obama did to Mitt Romney in, in 2012. And look, there will still be an opportunity for the, the Trump campaign to do that. I think at some point over the summer, if this crisis does, uh, as we all hope it does, begin to recede at least a little bit, but it's absolutely giving him cover. And I also think it's one of the reasons that I, I don't think there's that much anger at Bernie Sanders just yet, because to the degree that anyone is focusing on politics, it still feels like the primary is still going because Bernie Sanders is still in the race. And and the truth is, like, th there's still that focus. But the Biden campaign, and you see this in his public remarks, they've already switched to the general election. I mean, yeah. Joe Biden is in general election mode. Yes, That's right. He's trying to court Bernie Sanders supporters, trying to bring them onto his campaign. But that's part of the general election. That's always the early phase of a general election for whoever the presidential nominee from either party. After they emerge from <laughs> the primary, they have to do some of that. Otherwise, he's focused on Trump. He's focused on modeling his own response to the coronavirus and criticizing the president's response to it. And, and so in some ways, I do think this has been good. I think the fact that the public's attention isn't on the presidential race probably is a very good thing for the Biden campaign because, look, you can, I, I know, I think if you're sitting at home, you think, oh, well, the Biden people, right, they've probably been thinking about the general election. They've had this in the back of their mind the whole time. I don't think that's how it works, actually. A primary is a, a full-scale effort, and you're talking about a campaign that a month ago looked like it was on its way to, like, a historic humiliation. You know, I really think their ability to try to to reset and rethink how they want to approach this is is, is valuable. It's really valuable. For them. Right. I imagine Jeb's guys sitting there going, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeb didn't have a Jim Clyburn. Uh, Jeb needed yeah. to find a Jim Clyburn. Well, yeah, or, or a, yeah, or a South Carolina firewall. Yeah, I, I, I mean, It's funny to me. Oh, just one, one more before I, you yeah, jump yeah. in, Adam. It's funny to me how Trump's nickname for Joe is a hell of a lot like his nickname for yeah, Jeb. Yeah, yeah, I noticed yeah, that. Yeah, I noticed right? that. I feel like he's got a he's got to find a better one than Sleepy Joe. It's not sticking actually. No. It's not working in the same way that it has on other things, no, right? It, and it's it it's one of his it's one of his key strengths is like finding the right name for somebody and it sticks and it's just not working on Joe no, Biden. No, not 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 yet. Yeah, no. I maybe Maybe the president is focused on the coronavirus response and hasn't come up with a nickname. Hopefully he's focused that on must it. Yeah. That, that must be it. That must be it. I'm sorry, Adam. No, I no, interrupted you. I was just, uh, to kind of add on to Alex's point, I mean, I, I mean, there's really only so much I think Joe Biden and his campaign can really do at this point. So I don't think, you know, it is all that bad for him just to sort of wait around and see what happens because I think it's, you know, it's just becoming increasingly likely that this general election is going to be a referendum on how Trump responded to this public health crisis and how he responded to what looks like is going to be an economic downturn. 
And so really all Joe Biden can kind of do is just look like, you know, a kind of like steady hand, an alternative, you know, choice who could handle a crisis well. But, you know, all the attention is going to be on Trump and his response for the foreseeable future. So, right. I mean, you know, you know, what could he even possibly do if he's not, you know, he's a former vice president. It's not like he's has a, a day job where he can actually be all that involved in in a daily re- response to this. I was actually talking to a Democratic pollster the other day who joked that he thinks Biden's best strategy is just to go in self-isolation now until about the end of October and just see see where things are. And, and then he can pop up. And, you know, if Trump handled it well, then there may be not much Biden can do. And then on the other hand, if, if it doesn't go well for Trump, then Biden can just sort of say, like, all right, I'm here. I'm the alternative. Well, I mean, listen, like the CDC does recommend that the elderly go into self-quarantine. Right. So. Yeah, well, I mean, that would go for Trump. That would go for Bernie Sanders as well. I mean, it's so tough to gauge the politics of all this right now. I mean, it was funny, too, just to hear the Democrats I was talking to in the lead up to Tuesday's primaries, you know, just kind of the back and forth they've already had about how Trump is handling this in a couple of days. I think at first the general consensus was, wow, Trump, he really bungled this. The White House was way late on this. He's going to get punished for this in November. But then, you know, yet earlier this week, you know, there was a clear change in tone from Trump. It looked like the government was on top of things. And then Democrats were starting to say, oh, wait, you know, is is, is he actually going to be able to come out of this um, unscathed? But it, it's going to keep going back and forth like this for, for the foreseeable future because there's new developments popping up every day. You know, we've been recording this podcast for, what, 15 minutes now? And who knows <laughs> the news that, that we've, we've missed just, just in this time. It's just so difficult to, to try and forecast how this is going to play in the next eight hours, let alone in the next eight months. The single best thing that Joe Biden could do for Joe Biden's campaign is to use this quiet time to raise money. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I mean, he needs to be calling people and saying, we got to catch up with this guy. You know, if the Dow Jones starts to rally back in August and September and October, we're going to need the money to fight this guy off. And that's got to be the message of the Biden campaign in this quiet period. And, you know, as we were talking about, you know, normally at this point in a presidential race where the nominee of kind of the opposing party does emerge, that's when the incumbent president would use all the resources that he's been stockpiling with his campaign with the RNC. And and they're way ahead of the Democrats in that respect, just to start blitzing him with TV ads. So to your point, if Biden can use this to to at least play a little bit of catch up here and be able to respond whenever that does happen, uh, you know, would only be beneficial to him. Interesting. Interestingly, though, because of the coronavirus, I mean, it's not like you could do fundraisers right now, not traditional fundraisers. Right. And that's one area where Biden has struggled in particular is the online fundraising. Mm-hmm. And there was a re- reports just before we, we actually started recording that some of the virtual fundraisers that they had have been delayed or outright canceled because of technical glitches. I mean, it, it's look, just like every other facet of American life, just the sort of daily day-to-day political operations are also being disrupted. I mean, it's just fascinating to me because we're talking about the like the senior leadership, the brain trust of the Biden campaign trying to come together, right, and figure out, okay, how do we how do we run the general election? How do we take on Trump? They're going to do it on software like this, our Google Hangout, right? <laughs> it's going to be the same Brady Bunch situation because they're all Zoom. working from home. They're all yeah, it's all going to be it's all going to be from from Zoom. You know, no no one is spared from the uh, the social distancing right now. Let's shift. I want you guys to start talking a little bit about the politicians, the officials who have emerged in the last couple of weeks as leaders, right? And what that means for their own politics. And I'm thinking really specifically about governors and local officials. I think in this moment where political journalists are like, what am I supposed to do? And they're all getting thrown at different kinds of stories or moved on to different beats, right? Tell me about it. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. I was I was actually texting with our friend Katie Glick earlier. I'm like, do you have anything to do? Are you, are you allowed to write stories? She was like, there's no politics to write about right now, but I'm supposed to come up with something. <laughs> actually, the New York Times did a great story recently. Jay Mar and I think Burns mm-hmm. it was, who did a really nice story about the governors who have emerged as leaders, right? And and who have taken on an, a, a bigger than expected role. Maybe not bigger than expected, but surprising in nonetheless. I thought it was a really smart story. It was a smart angle. What are you guys seeing? Adam, why don't you jump in first? No, yeah, I agree. It was a really smart story. And, you know, kind of to our point earlier about how the Trump White House really was sort of delayed in their initial response to this. It really left a vacuum that a lot of local and state officials stepped up and and filled. And, you know, it's just interesting to think from the broader context of, you know, governors and local officials, but particularly governors, have had a rough go of it in national politics the last few years. And you think of all the governors that ran for president on the Republican side in 2016 and got nowhere. You think of the handful of governors that ran uh, on the Democratic side in 2020 and gained little to no traction. And now all of a sudden they are stepping in as really the, the, the foremost leaders and outside spoken voices in the face of this crisis. I'd be curious to know how many of our listeners, except for those obviously who are probably in Ohio, even knew who Mike DeWine was before this week, the Republican governor of Ohio. He really, you know, took a big step forward coming out on Monday, the day before the Ohio election on Tuesday and said, nope, we're not going to do this election, filed a lawsuit. A judge even came back and said, you can't do this. But he went forward and had his health director declare a health emergency. The polls were not open at all on Tuesday. I mean, a really extreme move, you know, and again, not in a pejorative way, you know, for a governor to call off an election mere hours before it was set to open. And you've seen that across the country as well. You know, you think of somebody like Jay Inslee, who did run for president and got, you know, almost nowhere. He's he's really been a leading voice out in Washington state in terms of not only setting guidelines on what his constituents should do, but just putting it in very stark terms of like, hey, if you don't follow these guidelines, if you continue to go about your daily life and gather in these large groups, like you're putting your parents and your grandparents at risk. And we just can't have that. So, you know, I wonder if, you know, what the long-term political implications of this will be, if, if people will start to turn from, you know, the last few years is all about people looking for outsiders who haven't been involved in politics, aren't part of the system to, you know what, actually it's maybe not the worst thing in the world to have, you know, kind of a competent leader who has a lot of experience in government and b- bureaucracy and can sort of lead us through these types of unprecedented crises. You know, I think part of this, the reason governors have struggled because the, the, the values that voters have, have for decades looked for was competence or being able to manage a large government just seem to matter less and less. And it's more and more about the performance and your ability to in, inspire in a, in a more ideological way. And that that has really swung the pendulum towards senators, um, in part because they're just naturally a lot more attuned to the national discussion. They're, we're going to have more of a national appeal and, and understanding of the issues and where they fit in in the ideological spectrum than, than governors, a lot of whom, you know, have to talk about the minutia of their state budget negotiations, right? Or or running different departments, you know, stuff that isn't sexy, but is is necessary to governing. And it's it's been this huge flip because I remember when I started as a political reporter, the wisdom was really the complete opposite mm-hmm. at that point. The thought was, I mean, we hadn't had a senator become president since uh, JFK, right. actually. You know, the thought was, oh, the people are looking for executive experience. People are looking for someone who have managed a large government before. They don't want to vote for senators. And obviously that that wisdom has been completely flipped on its head. You know, so that that's the, that's the thought, you know, and, and I think we've seen 
you know, you mentioned Mike DeWine. I think Andrew Cuomo from New York, of course, has, has gotten a lot of play. And really, he's even yeah. had some very interesting back and forth with President Trump. Yeah, and he's, he's being interviewed by his brother on CNN every night now. <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean, even find, you know, finding moments of levity in, in a very serious crisis. You know, I think locally here, Larry Hogan from, from Maryland. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just governors, it's mayors and other local officials who seemingly have had to step forward here and really take decisive action. And they are really setting the tone. And I think there's speculation that one of the reasons the president's tone changed this week so suddenly and abruptly and started treating this, not just like a serious crisis, but one that is not going to have an imminent end, is that he saw how other governors were talking about it. And he said, and maybe their performance is what finally got through to him. So in some ways, you know, the federal government or the executive of the federal government following the leadership in the states and of the governors. All right, I'm ready to shift. Want to go to the next part of the show? Let's do it. I think I'm looking at your faces. I can tell you're ready to go, too. This is actually, everybody knows, my favorite, where you guys get to try to tell me something I don't know. So I'm really interested in what you have after you've been reporting from home for a week. (laughs) What does work from home do to the quality of the information that you have that I don't already know? So, Alex, you get to go first. Sure. Uh, Well, you know, I actually, right where I'm sitting right now at my uh, desk at home, I interviewed Colin Allred. He's a congressman from Texas. In the conversation, we were actually talking about the Biden campaign, but it kind of naturally evolved to this point where he started talking about his concern about the November election. And this is going to be, this is my point. This is going to be something that's going to be very important right now, heading all the way to November. Do lawmakers and local election officials adjust how you vote in November? Because what Adam was just mentioning, right, that the governor of Ohio delayed the vote mere hours before the polls were supposed to open in Ohio for the primary election. Can you imagine if that happened in a general election? I mean, you can't. It's, it's more difficult legally to do that because it's general election. But you are talking about chaos and an illegitimate election. Um, a lot of people will not see it as legitimate. You were talking about something that will strike it. Like, I don't want to overhype this, but really it's sort of foundation of American democracy if you do that. There are a lot of voting rights experts, and Colin Allred used to be a, a civil rights lawyer, who are really already focusing on how can we make sure that people feel safe when they vote in November, and that's really going to be a discussion about voting by mail. And there is a lot of apprehension. There is absolutely a political angle to this, because if you change how people can vote, you're going to change the turnout. And we know how important the turnout is in the electorate. And just to throw one more part of this on why it's so important, why there's so much focus on it now, these aren't changes that can be made in October. You know, I mean, someone from the the Brennan Center, uh, which does a lot with voting rights, like you have to license new facilities to print off these ballots. They can't do that in October or September or August. You have to start lining that that sort of thing up now to make sure that it happens. And it is certainly a second order response to this crisis because we're all focused on the fiscal stimulus and trying to save the American economy right now. But telling you now is going to be a discussion about whether or not all Americans should have the option to vote by mail. Just like everything else is going to become a partisan fight, I suspect. Right. And, and it's such a complicated process because, you know, you can't just have like a national declaration that applies to all 50 states. You know, that's right. one thing that, you know, has become very apparent in, in the last few days as a lot of states are canceling their elections or postponing them is that it's a different process in every state. In Ohio, you know, the governor may be able to, to declare a health emergency, but in other states, you know, you have to pass a bill through the legislature. So it's, it's, it's going to be a, a really complicated process to figure out how Americans can safely vote come November. And I would just say, just to close the loop on it, I mean, Congressman Alderit, his, his, his tone was not especially optimistic. I mean, I think he was fairly candid about the seriousness of that and the importance of it and how it is on not just his mind, but a lot of his Democratic colleagues 
on Capitol Hill, and I'm sure Republican lawmakers as well. So really, I think after we get past this initial economic response and stimulus, that's where the discussion is going to go pretty fast. Dear listeners, you have just witnessed Alex Rorty coming up with a fabulous idea and assigning himself a story for next week. Thank you, (laughs) Alex. I'm supposed to talk with the Brennan Center again here in an hour or so. So uh, we were on the same wavelength with that, thankfully. All right. Good. Get on that. Stop talking. Start writing. Okay, Adam, (laughs) what do you got? Well, before we uh, completely leave the the primary behind, obviously one of the big debates that happened in this race coming out of Super Tuesday was where do Elizabeth Warren supporters go? And, you know, Bernie Sanders, people were really pushing for her to get out of the race because they viewed her as siphoning off a lot of progressive voters from Bernie Sanders. There was a lot of pressure from her supporters to endorse. Obviously, she you know, never made an endorsement. Uh, she still hasn't yet. And at this point, I don't know what, what good that would do. But, you know, this was something that we wrote about in the wake of Warren dropping out is, you know, let's not assume that all of her supporters would necessarily go to, to someone like Bernie Sanders while they do share a lot of obviously progressive ideas. You know, really the core base of her support was among white college educated women. And so I went back and looked through the exit polls and states that have voted since Elizabeth Warren dropped out. Uh, so that includes Florida, Arizona, Illinois from Tuesday. And then um, at least from states that had this data available from March 10th, that was Michigan, Missouri, and Washington. And Joe Biden won white college-educated women by double digits in all of those states. Obviously, that's only a slice of Warren's support. So, you know, we can't make a blanket statement that Elizabeth Warren's dropping out of the race overwhelmingly helped Joe Biden. But it is a good sign for Biden going into the general election because white college-educated women, particularly those in the suburbs, uh, were really the ones that helped deliver the House of Representatives back uh, into Democratic control. So Biden is going to really be counting on these voters in swing states uh, come November against President Trump. Well done. I like both of those. All right. Final part of our show before we sign off, Alex, who should our listeners be following as this story evolves? Well, I I would just say now that it looks like Bernie Sanders is on his way out of this race, um, people should follow uh, Sean Sullivan, uh, who's the Washington Post political reporter who's been the Sanders beat reporter, I am sure is going to have some very interesting perspective. He is also the reporter who Bernie Sanders and the campaign have somewhat called out, and you might say in a Trump-like fashion during this race, upset at some of the coverage, upset at what they, you know, maybe not so jokingly referred to as the Amazon Washington Post because of its owner, Jeff Bezos, you know, has not always been publicly anyway, a, a smooth relationship between the two sides, but he has done an excellent job covering the race. And I think we'll have a lot of perspective in the coming days about maybe where things went wrong for the Sanders campaign. Sean's a rock star, man. He's the one who got away. Yeah. Yeah. We used to, we used to work with him back in the day at the hotline and now he is a, a big star writing for the Washington Post. All right, well, I'll know what you got. I would encourage folks to follow Bill Ruthart. He is the uh, lead political reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and he has done a lot of great stories already this cycle focusing on the Midwest. We did some good coverage in the lead up to the Iowa caucuses, um, the Michigan primary, and of course, in the Tribune's home state of, of Illinois. Uh, he will be continuing to cover the, the those key Midwestern battleground states going into November. So I would encourage everyone to go give him a follow. I can't believe it, Adam. Give a shout out to someone in the Midwest. It's a total shock. It's stunning. But, but someone from Illinois. So, you know, that really, you know, t- took a lot for me to, to, to move past that. This entire time, just so the listeners know, there has been a map of Wisconsin above Adam's oh, yeah. head. She sits on the wall at, at, at his home and has forced uh, Kristen, Jeremy, and I to, to look at this whole time. 
Okay, I'm, I'm just going to move us on. I'm tired of talking about Wisconsin every friggin' time Adam's on this show. I want everybody to follow Bianca Padro Ocasio. She is one of our reporters at Miami Herald and El Nuevo Herald. And she, along with David Smiley and Alex Dougherty, wrote this week a really smart story that, that refutes the narrative that Joe Biden is weak among Hispanics. Really smart story. Really good reporter. And you can follow her at Bianca Joni. So go for it. And guys, that's our show. Thank you to you, Alex. Thank you to you, Adam. And mm-hmm. beyond. Yeah. And of course, thank you to Jeremy Sheeler and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And obviously, and always, thanks to you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. And if you don't, you can email me instead. How about that? Talk to you next week. <laughs>